Well, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open it up to uh, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, you will find on page 947. Uh, Speaking of membership and elders, a reminder for our members today that after the worship service, we are going to have a short, I promise, short congregational meeting uh, to vote on and approve Francis Park as a new elder here at Grace Church. Uh, This past summer, most of you are aware, uh, two of our elder and their families relocated, and we are in a time in in our church where God, again, has been growing us, and we are in need of shepherds and overseers, and so the nominating committee who's made up of members uh, nominated Francis, and uh, we're going to be voting on that today. So it's going to be about 15 minutes long. It's going to be after the worship service. Uh, There's going to be no child care which will be interesting. Um, so everyone's just going to be, we're always going to be in here together. And, um, and we're going to hear his testimony. Uh, I'll share a little bit about kind of where we're going as a church and some decisions that are being made. Um, and so it's short, but it's very important. So all are welcome to attend. Only members are able uh, to vote. And that will be, again, right after the worship service. Well, when I was, uh, it was either middle school or high school. And uh, my father and I did a camping trip up in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And uh, my, my dad had zeroed in on this one hike that he had heard about and he wanted to go on. It, it was a stretch of the Appalachian Trail uh, called Franconia Ridge. Uh, the Franconia Ridge Trail, if you're a big hiker, maybe you've heard of it. Um, but it's a trail that begins at the top of a mountain. And it's Mount Lafayette. And... Um, this was either July or August, and so we begin the hike in shorts, and t-shirt, and a bottle of water. And we get going up, and maybe we had like a sandwich too, but we found we were completely unprepared for this hike. Um, you know, like it, it's a bad sign where as you're passing people, they're like, they have a lot more gear and layers than we do. But I've shared this before. I think our family has a sweating problem. It's kind of gross. We sweat very easily. And so we're like, okay, well, like it's middle of summer. We're going on a hike. Like this is what we're wearing. And, um, but, but you do, you start seeing people on the trail, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, no. And... <laughs> And we get to the top, and the top, and, and you can tell, we like hiking, but we're not hikers, because we would have known this if we were. It was freezing cold at the top, which, when you spend the whole time sweating going up, and then it starts, gets cold, like, that's literally one of the worst feelings ever. And so, um, everybody has, like, their windbreakers on, and they're pulling out their backpacks, setting up camp. They have, like, they're blocking the wind with things. And my dad and I are, like, we're too pride, proudful to, like, admit it, but we're just, like, shivering cold, like, eating a sandwich, like... <laughs> hiding behind a rock. Um, It actually has nothing to do with my point. That was just to share my misery of that. It's just going somewhere. So we eat, we shiver, and then we get to the start of this trail, Franconia Ridge. And again, it starts at the top of the mountain, and it travels literally along a ridge line of a mountain range. And it's probably one of the coolest hikes I've ever been on, which is why I remember it so much. Um, and, and there's points. I think we have a picture up there. I don't know how well it's going to come across up here. Um, my kind of car. So you see how kind of narrow it is. And you're literally walking, and there's, there's a drop-off on either side. And it just kind of goes along the ridgeline portion of the Appalachian Trail. And what struck me about this um, was that I, I thought of this hike when I was preparing these sermons these last two weeks of this vision series. Because it was a trail that began at the top of a mountain, not the bottom. It was at the mountaintop that this incredible journey began. 
And the reason why I was reminded is that many people view the Christian life like a normal hike. We start at the bottom, and if you make it, and if you persevere, at the end of your life, God will then maybe accept you at the mountaintop. But you got to get there, and it's on you. Do good things, live a good life. You'll find out at the end if you made it. But the Bible paints literally the opposite picture. And we saw it last week in Exodus 33, that it is by grace we are saved, and God puts us at the mountaintop. And he puts us there. Despite our sin, despite our failure, he sent his son to save us by faith. And from there, it's from the mountaintop that we get on the trail of pursuing a Christ-centered life. And so our motivation is to glorify God, not so that someday in the future he might accept us, but that he has accepted us. He has, he has found us in the, in the truth, in the center of his will, and he already accepts us in Christ. And out of gratitude, we walk the path he has marked out for us. So last week we saw our vision, we saw our motivation is the glory of God, and our movement is to make disciples. So if last week was the why and the what, this week is the how. How is that going to happen? How is the movement of making disciples look in the local church, specifically for us here at Grace Church? So with that said, Romans chapter 11, we're going to read the last few verses before heading into chapter 12. So Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Last week, Exodus 33, we saw Moses' literal mountaintop experience when he said to God, please show me your glory. And while God said, you can't see all of my glory because you can't handle it, but I will allow my goodness to pass before you and I will proclaim my name. And I think that's the moment in Moses' whole life where he probably felt closest to God physically but also spiritually, that seeing God's glory was the fuel he needed to continue to lead Israel, which had a lot of ups and downs. So that was Moses last week. I think what we just read here in Romans 11 is the Apostle Paul's figurative mountaintop experience, the moment where he felt closest to God, where he wanted to explode And this mountaintop experience is what's going to lead him to lay out the pathway of the Christian life, of becoming and making healthy disciples. Because what we just um, saw was Paul breaking out in song. You know what Paul does not do often? It's like your senior pastor. He doesn't break out in song too often. Like, my biggest nervous, like, every week is that I'm by accident have this mic on with the worship team. Like one of these weeks, it's going to happen and derail it all. But it's this, it was this moment where Paul, who's a pretty kind of linear thinker, isn't he? Like going through doctrine and going through theology. But he gets to the end of chapter 11, and he just explodes. And the reason is because Romans 1 through 11 is like Paul's magnum opus of theological writing. 
He systematically works through God's plan for salvation over the course of 11 chapters. It was a letter written to the church at Rome, which at this point he had never been to or visited. Most of his other letters, um, like the one we'll start next week preaching through the book of Philippians, are most of his other letters are to churches that he planted or he visited frequently, but not Romans. Which is why I think he took the time to systematically write such a depth of a letter to them. Because I bet you in the other cities, Romans 1-11 to is what he taught in physical form. But he had never been there, so now he kind of lays it out in written form. And this is subjective, I know, but I think Romans 1-8 through might be the most glorious stretch of your Bible. It is deep, yet it is readable. It is complex, but clear and understandable. It's why many people talk about the quote-unquote the Roman road to salvation because it just really walks you through it. That God's plan from the beginning was to send his one and only son Jesus Christ from eternity past to, to take on flesh, to die for the sins of mankind in order to save them from eternity in hell. And so whoever believes in Jesus, there will be no condemnation for their sin. And the end of Romans 8, probably the most glorious few verses together, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And from there, you go to Romans 9. And Romans 9 to 11 is probably amongst the most difficult chapters in your Bible to understand and interpret, where Paul talks about election and God's plan for Israel and the historical redemptive themes that can, can be hard to understand but are no less glorious. In fact, Romans 9, Paul quotes, Mose, Paul quotes God's words to Moses we read last week when God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's kind of like the sovereignty of God over all things. And then from there, to conclude this massive theological presentation, he proclaims, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And Paul shows here the connection between mind and heart in the Christian life. Knowledge and emotion. You see, the Christian faith is not just the dry sense of doctrines that we just kind of dictate but doesn't really do anything to us. It's kind of boring, it's static, it feels like school. It's not the Christian faith. And also, the Christian faith is not just a slew of emotion and irrational responses that is void of intellectual thought. Rather, it is an explosion of the heart that comes through an engaging of the mind. And Paul shows us that to see God's glory is to dwell upon who he is, to think of what he has done, and then to love him for it. Glorifying God and making much of him, because there's none like him. In all his power, and all his authority, and all his wisdom, he has chosen to make himself known but save us by his grace. And that's why Paul goes to Isaiah 40. That's, in those verses, there's a quote of Isaiah 40 says, hey, raise up a hands. Who has given God a gift that he needs to be repaid? Anybody, you have, you, you have God in your debt? Who does God owe? No one. Everything we have is a gift from him. And so from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. It's a mountaintop moment. A moment where you're so overwhelmed by the goodness and grace 
from God. And, and it just want, you just want to explode in you. Can you think of a moment in your life you've had that? Maybe it's when you first came to faith. Maybe it was long after, but a moment for whatever reason, whatever circumstance, you just were on the mountaintop because you were just thinking about all God has done for you and you just can't even handle it. And for many people, that moment happens in the moments of worst suffering and most hurt in the world where God chooses to reveal himself in the darkest of moments. But Paul does not finish with this song in chapter 11. He goes into chapters 12 through 16, and he's going to give us the application of what it is to live a Christ-centered life. So if chapter 11 is the mountaintop, chapter 12 is the start of the Franconia Ridge line. Following? And he's going to show us this grace-fueled pathway of the Christian life. And we're going to see that these next few verses, in, or actually all of chapter 12, is going to show us the pathway of worship community, service, and mission. So let's go. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One tip I've always been taught when it comes to reading the Bible and understanding it is that when you see the word therefore, ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. Think about it. Because that word indicates that it's building on something that was just talked about before it. So when Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, it's attached to what he just said. And I think of all the therefores in the Bible, the one in Romans 12 is the biggest therefore. Because it flows from the mountaintop. It flows from to him be the glory forever. And the trail starts from the top. And what's the first thing it says to do? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. First stop on the path, Christ-centered worship. And this verse alone shows us that worship includes singing and music, but it is far more than singing and music. It includes a worship service that we think about it once a week, but it's far more than just a worship service once a week. Worship, according to Paul, is the act of giving ourselves as a living sacrifice. Those are very calculated words. It's a sacrifice, which in the Old Testament was language used for uh, the renewal of life in God's people. The renewal of life required sacrifice. But it's a living sacrifice, meaning that on this side of the cross, in the empty tomb, we are servants of a living Savior. Amen? Like, we are a resurrection people. His victory over death is our victory. And so we are living sacrifices and we engage in spiritual worship, which is the giving of our entire selves. Paul said worship is primarily a condition of the heart. It's not just something you do. It's something in you. Author, pastor John Piper writes in his book, Expository Exaltation, he writes this, what we find in the New Testament is a stunning degree of non-specific, I can't say that word, for worship as an outward form 
and a radical intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart. Christ-centered worship is an outflow of seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ and treasuring it so deeply that every aspect of our lives is lived out for him. That there's no part of your life that is off limits to him. Jesus is not an add-on to everything else in your life. He's not a safety net in, things, in case things go wrong. He's not an insurance policy that you sign and put in the file and never think about again. That he shapes and he informs all that we are, all that we think and do. And, and he, he, here's what's important to realize. Um, worshiping is not just for Christians. It's a people thing. Everybody worships. Meaning everybody has something in their life that shapes their thoughts and their feelings and their actions. What gets you up out of bed in the morning? That's what you worship. So everybody worships. The question is, what is it? And and, and common replacements for God in our day is the worship of money or status or success or fame or some combination of all of those. In fact, many people, I think, would not even know how to answer that question What's at the center of your life? I don't know. Me? But whatever that answer is, consciously or subconsciously, it impacts the way you work, impacts the way you sleep, spend time with others, impacts your hobbies, your time, your money. And so someone who sees the glory of God, who believes in Jesus Christ, will be a Christ-centered worshiper, will, will make much of him. And so if you're asking the question, okay, get practical for me, because what's that look like? You're, you're up here, what's that actually look like? I think ultimately, again, it's not just about what you do, it's a desire of what's in you. A desire to adore and glorify God, not just by yourself, but with others. And so we call this the worship service. And we call it that because it is our weekly gathering that's not the only part of our worship, but it's the most important one. So if worship is an inward experience that manifests itself in outward action, gathering together at this time, every week, in this place, is very fitting for a people who want to worship God, who, to, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has brought us from darkness to light, to, to sit under the preaching of the word, to sing together and to one another. And then again, verse 2 of chapter 12, Paul goes from declaring our worship. What's he say next? He then exhorts us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? The renewal of your mind. Even with all the glory and the praise Paul gives the Lord, he concedes, you know what? This world is still fallen. And we are constantly being pulled by the world back into a former way of thinking. We're constantly being pulled back into a former way of living. And so Paul gives us the connection of mind and heart. That worship is not just an emotion. It's not just get very emotional and hope it works out. It's thinking So in our corporate gatherings, when I preach, I want you to think. I want noses in our Bibles. I want you to think as I'm preaching. Don't just accept what I'm saying without any kind of thinking and processing. Knowing that the best way to stir your own heart will come through the engaging of your mind. So the first stop on the pathway of discipleship is worship. We gather Because it's in this gathering that faith gets awakened, that faith gets strengthened. And then we scatter from here throughout the week. And what do we do? We we worship. 
We continually find ways to get our mind on who God is, what he has done. This is done, I think, primarily through spiritual disciplines, through Bible reading and prayer and fasting and singing and memorizing scripture. That can happen all throughout the week. And so if you were just to ask me a question, okay, pastor, I'm hearing all you saying, just how do I do Christ-centered worship? I would say this, to distill it down, be here for our weekly gathering, and then don't let this weekly gathering be your only aspect of worship. So my dad grew up in a Norwegian home, straight like off the boat, Norway, in Staten Island. And I don't know if this was just their home and all Norwegian homes, but like the one meal you were not allowed to miss was Sunday dinner. And it happened in the afternoon. My grandma would make a huge meat and potatoes. They had four boys in their family. Um, so a lot of meat and a lot of potatoes. And, you know, they were they loved playing sports. They were always out. But you did not even ask to get out of Sunday dinner. And what, you know, and what he would tell me, he goes, was that our only meal of the week? Of course not. But was it, was it the most important meal? Absolutely. And it's the same with worship. The Sunday gathering is your most important spiritual meal. Church, be very careful to trade this in for lesser things on Sunday morning. Be very careful. It's the biggest meal, but it's not the only one. All right, let's keep going. Next stop on this trail. Let's read verses 3 through 5. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Second stop, we're following Paul's pathway here. You got the mountaintop of God's glory moving us to Christ-centered worship, which then ushers us into Christ-centered community. Spiritual worship is personal, but never private. And worship is ultimately a communal act. Let me tell you something new I found out this week while studying this passage. You notice Paul's warning he slips in here? By the grace given to me, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. True worship ought to make us humble, not proud. Because what causes our worship is that God saved us by his grace and not by our works and by its nature. And I fail at this, we fail at this, but by nature, Christians should be the most humble people. And then, here's the connection I put together this week. He immediately then goes and talks about the body of Christ. And it's just a connection I never made before. I've always known the verse, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. I've always known the verse, that we should be members of one another. But I never thought about the fact that those two are back to back. Meaning that one way, and maybe the primary way, of living in humility and not thinking of yourself too highly is committing yourself to a faith community. Because it's recognizing, I can't do this on my own. And if I truly want to defend against the pressures of this world and conforming to this world, and I want my family to be equipped to, be, to defend against that as well, I need to be all in 
with a group of people who God will use to strengthen me and I them. And a healthy faith, a healthy spiritual life is not possible without the church. I'm not talking about a church service. I'm talking about people. Look into your left and look into your right and in front of you and behind you. It's not possible without them. Because being around other people is what pushes you to stay on the path. So my brother owns a CrossFit gym in Midland Park. Um, CrossFit Bison, check it out. I get royalties if people go. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, But a lot of CrossFit workouts um, you can do on your own with some equipment and a little space. You can do it in your own garage, in your own basement if you have room. Um, And I always heard him say, um, but listen, you will always work out harder if you do it here with other people. And again, I always heard him say that, but it was not until our twins came in December that it clicked, because I ended up having to do a lot of more workouts at home. I just, I was working out at weird hours, because day is night, night is day, everything's all over the place, I had a shorter window of time, and so there's not classes, um, you know, available, so I, when I needed to work out, so I will just do it at home. And I would do some of the same workouts we've done over the years at CrossFit Bison, but I would do them in my own garage. Same exact workout, same exact equipment if I had minimal equipment at home. But I would find over and over again, I'm not nearly as tired when I work out at home than I work out at the gym. Or there are times where my times and my workouts were much slower. Why? Sleep deprived, maybe. (laughs) I'll give you that. But ultimately, I was alone. I was by myself. And just being around others pushes you because community matters. It's innate in us. And if that's true physically, it's all the more true spiritually. There's a guy out of Australia. His name's Mark Sayers. And he has just this really brilliant kind of insight into culture. And he said that in our cultural moment, there is this reality that people desire connection because we're feeling more isolated than ever. But, listen, he says, they so idolize personal freedom that they won't sacrifice it in order to build actual community. And I thought how true that is, not only in people out there, but in my own heart, that there's this idol of personal freedom that pushes back against a desire to be connected with other people. And so community can often get sacrificed at the altar of individual freedom. And this is why Paul is so often pointing out that the church is one body, and we're made up of many members. He never said it's easy. Never said it's easy. It's really messy, but it's so needed. And it's glorifying to God because we have all different functions, and so we need one another, especially others who are different from us. And so when I do talk about membership and this idea of making vows to one another and making it official, um, the commitment is needed because if it's not there, we will at some point give in, our, give in to our own desire to bail and to go as we please. And I have said many times, at some point I'll disappoint you. And it probably won't take that long. Sometimes I'll be know about it. Oftentimes I won't know about it, but I, I, I'm fallen, man. I'm just not a perfect pastor, and I will fail you, and other members will fail you, and we'll have disagreements. And what he's saying is that you be in, be in like a vow. Membership is vital, not just because we need it, but the church needs you. So application point, October 12th is our next membership class. Maybe you should come. 
Let's keep going. I got to go faster here. I always say that. Romans 6 through 13. Next stop. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Christ-centered worship ushers you to Christ-centered community. And what's the natural next movement? Christ-centered service. Serving the people in your community for the purpose of building one another up in the faith. The church consists of many members, and we're very different, praise God, with a variety of gifts, which we are called to zealously, you notice that word again put in there a couple times, zealously pour out for the glory of God and the good of others. Um, Here's where the discussion of spiritual gifts goes off the rails. Whenever we talk about spiritual gifts, we're all worried about ourselves, right? Like, what's my spiritual gift? And it's not a bad question to ask. The problem is, is that when we feel like we land on it, we feel like it just spotlights that person. That person is gifted for this, and we think much of them because they're gifted there. But the Bible says your gift is not primarily meant to be for the good of you, but rather God gifts you to serve and bless others. And so Paul's list of gifts here, and there's a few areas in the New Testament where there's kind of a listing of the gifts. Um, Paul's is not meant to be exhaustive. That's not every gift there is within the body. But he's just trying to get the point across. There's a wide variety of gifts within one body. And no one person has all the gifts. Which is why we need one another to use our gifts to build up one another. And so when we talk about Christ-centered service here at Grace Church, um, I I think there's kind of two lanes to talk about. There's kind of a culture of serving and a structure of serving. Uh, A a culture of serving is that we are a people that have an eye towards one another. And we have a bent towards keeping an eye on one another in our community with a desire to serve them where we can. Not only, but especially those who are struggling, those who are in need emotionally, physically, financially. There's a culture of just having our eyes on other people. And then there's a structured sense of serving, meaning that we have ministries and teams here that contribute to the work of making disciples through the ministry of Grace Church. And that's not just done by staff and leaders, that's done by the body who fills in these ministries and these teams to contribute to the making of disciples. So, so before the worship service, every single Sunday, um, there's a back office there where anyone who's involved in the Sunday service meets to pray. And so back there, you have the pastors, you have a worship team, you have the person doing the prayer, you have a sound person, projection person, security person. We'd have more kids workers if they weren't already have to be on in the rooms. But we have many members in that room, all across the board, all different gifts with one purpose, to glorify God. To, to use whatever God has placed us to 
glorify his name and make disciples. And so when it comes to serving, I just want to just be very honest and transparent with us as a church. When you serve, you're not just filling a need. You're not just doing someone a favor. It's a vital aspect of your growth and maturity in the faith to serve others. It's part of being a disciple. And it blesses others. It builds them up. And in the process, it grows you. One pastor I heard this past summer, and I think I've heard this before, but it just hit me in a different way this summer when I was up at Spofford. He said, listen, serving the Lord is our honor. It's not somebody else's honor. It's not, well, the Lord is lucky to have me. This church would be nowhere without me, man. No, it's not his honor. It's not others' honor to serve. It's our honor to deploy our time and our treasure and our talent. That no one is lucky to have us. Remember the earlier exhortation by Paul? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. It's our honor. And you are missing out if you're not serving. And so if you're attending Grace Church, the default should be serve somewhere. you got to serve somewhere. And if we don't push you in that, we're not doing our job of discipling you. We're doing you a disservice by not calling you to serve. But by not serving, not only are you stunting your own growth, it does hurt the body. You know, last week, if you were here, we saw the MEP video, a really great update of their trip down to the DR. And my favorite part of the video, the whole thing was great, but my favorite part of the video was one of our teens, Joy Zhang, talked about the fact that before the trip, she thought she was going to have to pull out. Because she was so overwhelmed by anxiety and stress and the burdens that's on a seemingly more and more on teenage girls. And she thought, I'm no good for anyone. What could I do down there? But by God's grace, she just said, I'm going to go. And she says, it was in the process of serving others that God made her feel better. It was in the process of serving others that God brought her out of the pit. And that is the reality, that God grows you when you get your eyes on others and serve them. And so we are in a place, like probably most churches are, if you've ever been a part of other churches, we need servants, man. Like this is not ethereal, like I don't know how we're going to apply this, but I hope you guys can go apply it in your own life. No, we got places to apply this. Because we've talked a little bit about how God has grown this church and that it is our job to steward this growth well by equipping and encouraging our people to serve one another. And so every attender has to be serving somewhere. And if you have bandwidth in your life to serve on multiple places, because our growth will not continue deep or wide without it. And there are plenty of areas, you know, think about... um, our, our serving teams on Sunday morning, our greeting team, our Grace Connect, um, there's a lot of different places. But when we talk about making disciples, I want to highlight one place. Last week, there were 100 kids from birth to fifth grade. I always thought we had 100 in the general pool. They were here on one Sunday. And the pool has gotten much larger. And so... When we talk about making disciples, my mind, if I'm honest, tends to go outside these walls. We need to make people Christians. We need to go into our neighborhoods and our workplaces. And yes and amen, but Grace Church, we have 100 disciples that we need to make in our own walls. They're here, 
and they're coming every week, and they're not just automatically grafted into the church. God needs to do a mighty work in their life to save them. And he uses us to be the means through which they come from darkness to light. And so Megan talked a little bit about it in the video of just her need for kids' worship downstairs. Man, there's great content down there. It's not doing other people favors. You will grow by teaching. And I'll get very specific. We need 16 teachers. We need 16 men and women to join that team of already 25 to 30. That It's a two-month commitment, one month at a time first half of the year, second half of the year, that you're a part of that team, being equipped by Megan, led by Megan to lead our kids, and it is your honor to serve there. And I don't want to get to a place where we need to start hiring other people to come teach our kids. We can do it. We can handle it. And it will bless others. It will grow you in the faith. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. All right, give me three minutes. We're almost done. Last section, chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Last stop on the Franconia Trail, Christ-centered mission. We do only need a couple minutes here because that whole batch of verses was like rapid fire, 11 commands, 12 commands. And while they are imperative exhortations, they flow from the pathway that was laid out before it. Meaning, verses 14 to 21, all those commands we just read are the fruit of living a Christ-centered life. If you're living in Christ-centered worship and in Christ-centered community, and you're serving with Christ-centered service, those three things will equip you to live in Christ-centered mission in this world. Because do you notice the shift in chapter 12? The first three points and the verses attached to them were kind of internal within the church, which build you up to be a witness in this world, to bless those who persecute you, to rejoice and weep, to live wisely to leave vengeance and justice to the Lord instead of trying to take it into your own hands. God will never overlook sin, but he doesn't need you to carry it out. He'll handle it. He calls us to live in missional language, and in order to live that out, we walk the pathway. And on the contrary, if you try to do verses 14 to 21 without worship, without community, without serving, Brothers and sisters, you're going to die on that battlefield. You just simply won't make it. It's too hard. At best, you'll be an ineffective believer who's constantly frustrated. And at worst, you'll just walk away altogether and try something else. Our job and our mission is not to defeat the world. And it's not to seclude from the world. Our job is to reach it. And it's hard work, but it's the best possible movement to be a part of to overcome evil with good. 
and through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can do it. And Grace Church, we will do it. And we will give God the glory for his grace that saved us and his grace that sustains us. There's our two weeks on vision. We got the motivation that leads to the movement. We get to the top of the mountain, and that's where the path begins. And it's time to go. Let's pray.